0: Hello and welcome to A History of Hannibal, Episode 54, Red vs. Blue. Battles and wars rarely happen in places for no particular reason. If two armies, let's call them the Red Army and the Blue Army, were fighting for control of a box canyon, say, Blood Gulch, there would really be no point. The Red Army is there because the Blue Army is there, and the Blue Army is there. Because the Red Army is there. Suppose one side won. Just what would they have? Control over a box canyon. What is the point of this strange opening monologue, which I'm hoping still makes sense if you don't watch Red vs. Blue? The point is that while Italy gets the focus in the Second Punic War, the other theatres were crucially important too. The Carthaginians needed to hold on to Spain to keep their supply of manpower. And Rome needed to hold on to Spain to prevent the Carthaginian armies there joining Hannibal in Italy. We've spent the past two episodes focusing on this. The same thing, too, was true with Rome's control of the Mediterranean islands. Corsica, Sardinia, and Sicily created a buffer between Africa and Italy, preventing Hannibal from simply sailing there. There was the additional problem of Carthage not building a fleet but I've spoken about that already. Rome needed to control the islands to create this buffer, which would prevent Hannibal from reinforcing himself from Africa, and Carthage needed control of the islands if they were to finish off Rome after the crushing blows Hannibal had dealt at Trasimene and Cannae. So, if that was why there was a theatre of war here, just what happened? As we haven't visited since episode 37, we'd best recap things first. Fortunately for us, this doesn't involve very much. Once the war started, and Scipio moved north to face Hannibal, Sempronius was based in Sicily, dealing with the situation there, along with the faithful ally king, Hiero of Sicily. After he headed north in 218 to go help Scipio, and would fight the Battle of the Trebia, a story you can catch upon by listening to episode 24. After this, very little happened before Canai, apart from a raid by Servilius into Africa. So we shall take up the story in 215. Following Canai, action was taken to secure Roman possessions, and this was needed in Sardinia. Sardinia was led by the newly appointed commander Quintus Mucius. It had a significant garrison, but only for peacetime. The old governor warned the Senate that rebellion and trouble should be expected, and Sardinia needed reinforcing. 5,000 troops were sent out, and just in time. A raid was launched against Sardinia by Hasdrubal the Bald, but the fleet was damaged by bad weather, and forced it to the Balearic Islands, where they made repairs. Things had been quite busy in Sardinia, but had come to a stop when Mucius fell ill. Titus Manlius arrived to help out, and took command of the forces to face Hampsicora Hampsicora was one of the most powerful figures on Sardinia, and had been targeted by the Carthaginians as their best method of regaining control of the island. So were backing him to overthrow the Romans, Manlius thus led his force, which was 22,000 infantry and 1,200 cavalry, against Hampsicora, who was in the interior of the island, mustering reinforcements, while his son Hostus was commanding the camp. Hostus was youthful, overconfident, and easily defeated by Manlius, as the Sardinians lost 3,000, with an extra 800 captured. The Sardinian army was about to be destroyed, the Romans needed one more battle to destroy them. But an event happened which saved the Carthaginian force. Hasdrubal the Bald returned with a repaired fleet. Manlius withdrew to Carales on the south side of the island upon hearing news of Hasdrubal's arrival. Hasdrubal linked up with Hamsicora, sent his fleet back to Carthage and began raiding the farms of Rome's allies... He could have made it to Carales, but Manlius was determined for this not to happen, and so he met the Carthaginians in the field. The two armies faced each other as minor skirmishes took place, with each force sizing the other up. Eventually, they faced each other and a full battle took place. The Sardinians were used to being routinely beaten, but the Carthaginians changed things. It was a tough fight that took four hours. But eventually the Romans got the upper hand as the Sardinian dead mounted up. It ended up being a slaughter, with twelve thousand Carthaginians and Sardinians dying, with three thousand seven hundred captured. Three senior figures were captured by Manlius, including a relative of Hannibal. Hampsicora escaped with a few horsemen, but it appears another of his sons, also named Hostus, was killed. Hampsicora was grief-stricken. He waited for darkness when he was alone, and committed suicide. A few days later, Manlius captured Cornus, a town where the Sardinian survivors had fled, and soon afterwards, the Sardinians who had sided with Thamsicora surrendered to Rome. Manlius marched back to Carales, and set off with his fleet back to Rome to report that Sardinia had been subjugated. Meanwhile, further south, in Sicily, Titus Octocilius was commanding the Roman fleet. Octocilius moved from his base in Lillibium to launch a raid on the African coast. When he heard of Hasdrubal the Bald travelling from the Balearics to Sardinia to launch the attack we've just spoken of, he moved north to try and counter it, and met the fleet heading back to Africa. It was an easy victory for Rome, seven ships were captured with the rest fleeing. The next event of significance in Sicily was certainly a very important one. Hiero, the king of Syracuse, passed away in 215, and power passed over to his grandson, Hieronymus. Livy has a very good sentence about Hieronymus, so I'll quote that from Book 24, Chapter 4. Livy says that Hieronymus was... Hardly yet of an age, to bear with any sort of decency, even the ordinary responsibilities of an adult, less alone the burden of absolute monarchy. Hiero saw this as a grave concern, and implored the boy and his guardians to remain friends of Rome, and for Hieronymus, aged 15, to continue his education. So Hiero died, and one of Hieronymus's uncles... Adrian Adorus took real power into his hands. Hiero was a tough act to follow. The Syracusans loved him completely. He dressed simply and didn't flaunt his power. It was definitely a monarchy in the mould of... first among equals. This was a well-liked approach, and Hieronymus would have done well to copy it, but instead, he reversed it completely. Rather than wearing the clothes of an average Syracusan citizen, Hieronymus went out wearing royal purple and a diadem, armed with attendants driving a chariot with four white horses. It reminded everyone of the old tyrant Dionysius. True to the phrase, of absolute power corrupts absolutely, and simply being so young at receiving absolute power, Hieronymus... Began to descend into debauchery. He treated everyone scornfully and retreated into isolation, refusing to even see his guardians, never mind the general population, not to mention unusual forms of lust and cruelty. While the young king amused himself, real power had gone to his guardians, mostly Adrianodorus, but also Zoppius and Thraso. Adrianodorus and Zoppius were both pro-Carthaginian, and Thraso was pro-Roman, creating policy clashes which drew the attention of Hieronymus. At this point, other matters would intervene in this rivalry. A young boy named Callo, the same age as Hieronymus, became aware of a plot against the life of the king, Callo had access to the king, being his lover, and warned him of the plot; however, he could only name a man named Theodotus as a traitor, as he was the one who had approached Callo. Theodotus was immediately taken in and handed to Adrianodorus. Theodotus admitted his own guilt, but would not name any accomplishes. He was tortured repeatedly, but still refused to give any names. So one day he gave in. He still didn't want to out anyone in the real plot, so he named people who were not involved, including Thraso. Thraso's name was evidence enough that Theodotus was speaking the truth, and Thraso was executed along with the others whom Theodotus had named. As for the actual conspirators, they'd all stayed in Syracuse, correctly trusting that Theodotus would not betray them. Thrasso was the regime's last remaining link with Rome, and from that point on, Syracuse's defection became not a matter of if, but of when. Envoys were sent to Hannibal, who sent representatives back to Syracuse, which set alarm bells ringing in the Roman camp. Appius Claudius, who would soon become consul in 212, was the praetor in charge of Sicily and he sent envoys to Syracuse immediately in order to renew the alliance between themselves and the Greek city, which had existed during the reign of Hiero. Hieronymus laughed this off. He asked the envoys if they could tell him how the Romans had fared at the Battle of Cannae, because he found the story the Carthaginians had told him hard to believe. The Romans were not amused. They told him they would visit again when he was willing to be serious, and left him with a warning not to change his allegiance slightly. Hieronymus did not make much of this, and sent messengers to Carthage to negotiate an alliance, and it was agreed that, once the Romans had been expelled from Sicily, a process which would not take long, as Carthage would send men and ships onto the island, Sicily would be divided in two by the river Himera. Syracuse controlling half, and Carthage the other. It was a reasonable deal, but the flatterers who surround courts and poison the minds of rulers were present here as they always are, and they reminded Hieronymus of his maternal grandfather, Pyrrhus of Epirus. Why should he settle for half of Sicily? It was his right he should have it all. The Carthaginians could have Italy and make their empire there, Sicily was his. No doubt, the Carthaginians chuckled amongst themselves at the 15-year-old king of a single city, demanding the Carthaginian empire give him Sicily. But in front of the Syracusans, they didn't raise an eyebrow. They knew he was only 15, and the ambition and recklessness such an age brings. So they let him think whatever he wanted. They were not going to miss the chance ...to wrestle Syracuse from the Roman fold, just to spoil the boys' daydreams. As Hieronymus prepared for a new Sicily, he sent out two small armies, each a few thousand strong, to go capture Roman towns. He led a force of 15,000 to Leontini. This was where the conspiracy against him decided to strike. They had brought one of the king's bodyguards into their fold... And while the king was on the march to the Forum, it was arranged that he would cause a distraction to hold up the procession. Which he did by stopping to adjust his shoes, saying they were tied too tightly. This enabled the king to be isolated, and he was stabbed to death. The liberators sent word to Syracuse to prevent Adrenodorus from taking action. All this news reached Appius Claudius very quickly and he was very confused. Some things were clear, though. He sent word to the Senate that Syracuse had defected to Carthage, and he focused his troops on the Roman-Syracusan border. It was clear that war was coming to Sicily. If you've enjoyed today's episode, visit us online, thehistoryofpodcast.com. You can also visit us on Facebook facebook.com forward slash the history of podcast. It is one of the best places to find out when episodes are out, and other podcast-related news. Let's face it, if you listen to podcasts, you know the internet well enough to be on Facebook, and it only takes a few seconds. You can recommend it to your friends, who like history, or anyone. I'm not fussy. Though, remember that if you do not interact with the page for a certain length of time, It will stop appearing on your newsfeeds, so visit regularly and like the odd post, otherwise you'll be missing out. I'll see you in two weeks when we see the war for the Mediterranean Islands really getting underway.